Policing Australia, the official podcast of the Australian Police Journal. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jason Burns, an assistant editor at the APJ. Sadly, sometimes police officers are called upon to make the ultimate sacrifice while performing their duties. In mid-December 2022, for instance, Australia reeled at the news of two young police officers who were ambushed and executed by terrorists in remote Queensland. Unfortunately, that incident was not the only time two or more police officers have been shot dead while undertaking their duties. Something similar occurred on Thursday 30 September 1971 in Western Sydney. On that day, Sergeant William Riley and Senior Constable Morris McDiarmid were shot dead while responding to a frantic report of a homicide at a house in the suburb of Toongabby. In total on that day, four men died. The offender, the two police officers, and the offender's third victim, his own brother. Additionally, the victim's partner was raped, and her and her children were terrorised by a desperate criminal who killed his brother for personal gain. In September 2018, the APJ printed an article about this incident titled Always Expect the Unexpected. I'm joined by the author of that article, APJ Deputy Editor Barry Fay. G'day Barry, thanks for joining me again. Good, happy to be here. Your article starts in Western Sydney in 1971. Yes, near Parramatta, Toon Gabby. You write about a poor victim, a woman who's living an unenviable lifestyle. The woman had a defacto husband, who was a young criminal, with an elderly brother who was also a criminal, and they lived on the proceeds of breaking and entering and things of that nature. And during the course of their living together in a rented house, the elderly brother started to become jealous of his younger brother's uh, de facto, to such an extent that whenever he got the opportunity, he tried to win her away from his younger brother. The older brother's name was Ron Clark. Ron Clark and his brother Warren. Warren eventually upset him to a point where he started to tell his de facto that he'd going to kill him, shoot him. But she didn't believe it. Now, there was a falling out between the two brothers, with the older brother, Ron, proposing to run away with his brother's partner. Yes, that's very true. The older brother was found himself alone with her for a number of days because the younger clerk, Warren, went home to see his mother and stayed for three or four days. And at that stage, Ron, the slightly older brother, said, come away with me and I'll look after you better than him. We'll go to Western Australia and drop out. They will never know. He will never know. To which she refused and said, look, he's coming home at any time now. Don't pester me. It's clear there was a fair bit of domestic violence between the younger brother and his de facto. Yes, the Warren Clark was a bit violent towards her, pushed her around a bit, assaulted her and assaulted the children if he thought they were playing up and he gave them a really terrible hiding. And at one stage he gave her a terrible beating when he came home and that really upset the older brother, Ron. He couldn't take that and made some plans to do away with his brother. He owned a gun, a twenty two rifle. Early in the morning of Thursday, 30 September 1971, a horrible event occurred inside the Toongabby house. 
that particular morning, the night after young Warren bashed the little girl, the de facto woke up to the sound of a rifle shot near her bed, only to see Ron holding a twenty-two rifle in his hand pointed at her de facto's skull, where she rolled her head over to look and saw he was bleeding profusely and realised that Ron had just shot his brother, who was dying. And what happened then? Well, she screamed out, Don't, don't kill us, don't hurt us, <laughs> don't, and uh, protested loudly, but he wasn't going to kill her. He had other thoughts on his mind and actually jumped on top of her, dragged her out of the bed, took her to his own bedroom, tore off the nightdress and raped her. And she pleaded with him that she would do anything for him, but he was not to kill her. Such was her fear. A little bit later, they're trying to tidy up and clean things, and she said to him, we'll have to go to the laundry in Blacktown because I want to clean some of these clothing. has got blood and stuff on them. And he said, all right, I'll take you in Warren's Blue Holden, which they did. And they proceeded up there to a laundry in Blacktown and he, she put all the clothing in, was watching the laundry wash and he said, oh, i got to go home. I, I've got something i got to do. And she said, all right, I'll be here when you come back. He said, you won't, you haven't said anything anyway, but you won't say anything now. No, no, she won't. But the moment after he'd gone, she asked another lady in the laundry mat where the police station was and took the kids and rushed off to the police station. The kids had not been harmed by Ron Clark? No, no, no. He'd looked after them. In fact, after the shooting, she alarmingly said, Did you hurt the kids? He said, No, no, they're still asleep. That was before he raped her. Anyway, she arrived at the police station, and the station sergeant said, She came into the station in a hurry and blurted out in an hysterical state that Ron had killed Warren. And so the story started to come out. In the station at the time were several police, including a general duties crew assigned to a caged truck. Yes, their their prime uh, caged vehicle, their number one truck, had just come back with two men in it, Sergeant Bill Riley and Senior Constable Morrie McDiamond were just getting a coffee. that returned just for a quick break when the, the station sergeant rushed in and said, it looks like you've got a murder to investigate and gave them the details of the house where Warren's body lay. And they said, right, we'll go on now. And they rushed out. Meanwhile, the victim, distressed if not hysterical, was introduced to the detectives at the station. Yes, immediately was seen by two detectives who questioned her on the whole case and within a short space of time they too were rushing off to the address given where the Warren's body lay. And what did the detectives find when they arrived at the scene? They arrived at the house and noted the truck or where the two uniform men came, uh, was really close to the house with the doors still open and the lights on, and but no one was about. So they got out to investigate 
and a woman came over from next door, a Mrs. Richard, who said, quick, two policemen are dead and you've got to come and help. And so they followed her around to the back of the house and we see Constable, Senior Constable McDiamond sitting on the veranda edge with his hand over his neck with blood completely soaking his shirt. And on examination, the detective in charge said he had a gaping wound on his right neck and it looked bad, but he wasn't seen to be bleeding that much. So I asked Mrs Richard to tear some sheets up and try and help him while I went into the house to check it out. In the kitchen, I found the dead sergeant, Sergeant Riley, with a bullet wound in his stomach and one in his head. And I went on further and I found the the deceased young brother who was wrapped in sheets by this time lying in a bedroom. By that stage, some additional uniform police had arrived at the house, including a then probationary constable you spoke to while you were researching the article. A constable, Rob Chloe, had only been in the job a few months when he turned up because of the urgency through messages over the wireless. VKG asked for any help and he'd been talking to Bill Riley and Murray McDiamond just a few hours earlier and so he was in a shock state when he rushed past the detectives and found Murray McDiamond there with his big wound and he held his hand because he couldn't talk. The part of his voice box was blown away and he held on to McClowey and tried to tell him that he was worried about his sergeant. He's pointing over his shoulder at the dead Bill Riley in the hall, in the, what he thought was a hallway. And he said that. He said, look, I, I wouldn't let him go. He was so close to death. I looked over the veranda railing and I could see right over the veranda into the hallway leading into the house that went from one end of the house to the other. And there was the sergeant laying on his back, dead. What then happened to Murray at the house? Well, the ambulance turned up. Uh, other calls had been made by the detectives earlier for help. Our ambulance turned up and Rob reluctantly let go of him while they examined him and shaking their head and quickly everybody surrounded the man and helped lift him into the ambulance. But he was close to death and he was dead on arrival. Barry, an urgent radio message was sent to all police to look out for a vehicle suspected as being driven by the offender. How did police learn about that vehicle? Oh, because uh, Mrs Richard had said that just before they arrived, he, the detectives, the elder brother, got into the blue vehicle and drove f- furiously away. And it was a blue FX Holden sedan. Your article jumps forward about an hour to a nearby suburb when another uniformed patrol saw the offender's vehicle. A couple of policemen, young policemen, Alf Gregory and Senior Constable Crawford, had just left Fairfield after being told about the shooting and were heading for Green Valley, an unusual patrol. But they were told to be on the lookout because they thought he might have been heading that way as his mother lived in Green Valley. And just for those listeners not familiar with Sydney Barry, it's about, what, 10, 15k drive between Toongabbie and Green Valley? Oh, yes, at least 15 kilometres, probably 
he'd driven to get there, but for Alf Gregory and his driver, it was only a short distance from Fairfield to through Cabramatta to Green Valley. And on the way, they spotted the blue car coming towards them. So Alf said to the driver, quick, do a you in, follow him. And immediately announced it over the VKG that they were following the suspected vehicle. Then what happened? A chase ensued. They followed him down to a long, wide road called Hoxton Park Road that leads from Liverpool out to Warragamba Dam. And he turned into that road and was heading for Lernia. And just around Hill Road, which was the main road to the shopping area, they propped the car as if they wanted to turn up there when... Alf Gregory and his driver went crash straight into the back and rammed the blue Holden. What happened to the Holden after the crash? The impact of the Holden sent it cruising over the footpath into a service station, a mobile service station, and into a bowser. The police car followed and Alf Gregory jumped out with his service pistol drawn. He looked at the driver who was now fumbling with something and he realised he was picking up a police gun and pointing him at at Alf. Well, that's a fearful thing to see a police revolver pointing at you and he fired a shot. The offender fell forward and then twisted and sat up again with the gun once more pointed at Alf Gregory and he fired two more rounds. One hit him in the head which ended the killer's life. Did Clark manage to fire at police? No. No, he was shot and wounded first before he could shoot the policeman. After investigating the matter, what did police believe happened at the house when their two colleagues were murdered? Oh, the reconstruction at the house was carried out by the detectives. From the investigation and the fact that Mrs Richard saw the offender in the front yard, it appears that he was loading the blue Holden, uh, loading something in the boot. He looked up and to his amazement, a PD has come charging into his driveway, which made him bolt for the back door to escape. Shortly after, of course, the two police jumped out of the PD... Sergeant Riley gave chase around the back, yelling to his mate to check, keep an eye on the front door in case he tried to get out that way, not realising the dangers they were both in. And he rushed around the back. By that time, the offender got in the back door and locked it, and the sergeant then came up and broke it with his shoulder. And as it smashed through, he stumbled through the back door the offender has picked up the twenty-two rifle and shot him twice, once in the chest and once in the right nostril that entered his brain. Hearing the shots from the front of the house, McDiamond rushed back around the side and up to the back door to help his sergeant. But when he got there and saw his sergeant obviously close to death on the floor, he tried to enter thinking it was like a hallway and he could walk up and catch the baddie, the offender, and he didn't realise that the offender was on the kitchen floor beneath the table or sitting underneath part of the table and picked up a shotgun and blasted him as he entered the kitchen. What did the post-mortem reveal? 
Well, first of all, the post-mortem revealed that Warren Clark had died from a single twenty-two rifle shot to the head. Then Sergeant Riley died from two shots. Either the rich might have killed him. The first bullet went through his chest into his spine, just lodging there, and the second bullet went into his right nostril up into the brain. The senior constable suffered the shotgun blast to the right side of his neck. It looks like he's turned his head towards the man holding the shotgun. Hence, it all copped it on the right side where the carotid artery and veins of the neck that support life were blasted away, including his voice box as he couldn't speak. There was a large funeral for the two police. Yes, it was believed to be the largest police funeral they'd had uh, ever. The commissioner had arranged for numerous police to attend and addressed the audience. And these 400 uniformed officers did a slow march alongside the gun carriage that held the two coffins as they moved towards the church. Both men were taken to the Pine Grove Cemetery at Eastern Creek where they were cremated. A memorial garden honours their name. Blacktown Police Station itself carried a lot of memorabilia about the two officers who were killed from their station. I understand there's a memorial to this incident at the New South Wales Police Academy in Goulburn. A plinth was made to describe the most memorable part of this murder investigation where the two police caps were laying face up and face down beside Sergeant Riley's body. Barry, it's a really important piece of policing history and it's a moving tribute to the officers on your part. Why did you write the article? And after 50 years, what do you think is the main lesson from this incident? I became very interested in it, as almost every police officer in New South Wales did at the time. It was unheard of. Two policemen being just shot dead almost uh, at the same time. Unbelievable. And it was what they call a classic police case. Hence, I became very interested in finding out all the particulars of it and I filed them away with the police journal for a future reference because it was a story that had to be told. And it needed a suitable title to warn other police, hence I called it Always Expect the Unexpected. That was APJ Deputy Editor Barry Fay and his article, Always Expect the Unexpected, was published in the September 2018 edition of the APJ. The article, containing some additional information Barry and I didn't mention during this conversation, can be read online at our website, apjl.com.au. As sombre as topics like this are, it's important to record them so as to inform our current and future generations of police about the hazards of their duties, and to honour the memories of officers such as Bill Riley and Moray McDiamond, and pay respect to the actions of the other police who responded on the day. Until next time, take care.